Christian, Travis, I've got a question for you that I've been thinking about as I've been prepping for today's show. If you had to choose, which way of life sounds better to you? Permanent celibacy or homesteading in the gator-filled swamps of southwestern Florida? There's there's no option C. <laughs> I have to I have to choose. <laughs> you you must choose. <laughs> oh man. Christian, what do you think? And we're supposed to choose what we'd rather do, correct? Your choice. Your rather life, your do choice. The, the gator thing for sure. I mean, how bad could they be? You can eat them. You know, you can eat them. A little light batter. That's right. I would be a terrible pioneer. I'd be whiny and itchy and the mosquitoes and just generally useless when it comes to building things. And I have actually had extended periods of celibacy, including most of college. And so I think I'd be better at that than as a pioneer. Celibacy has really been chosen for you, Dan. Really, it's not been <laughs> your choice. So I can I can see why you'd do that. It was sort of a consensus of the women of Haverford College. I don't know if there was an official. <laughs> was there an official vote? Yeah, I don't know if they. I don't know. They called you Danny Green Stones. They knew what was going on down there. <laughs> well, I am Dan Greenstone in Chicago, along with Christian Goodwillie at Hamilton College, and that's Travis Chandler at the controls. And this is Communes USA a podcast that chronicles the fascinating past, present, and future of group living experiments. And Christian, we've got the Koreshian unity on deck for today. And that's why I was talking about celibacy and Florida, because they built a thriving commune of over 200 people in the swamps of Florida near present-day Fort Myers. And it's an amazing story, but we've got a little bit of old business that needs tying up. Um, so Travis, you'll remember last time in our pilot episode, I gave a little quiz and I asked you guys to try to guess whether a series of group living arrangements qualified under the definition of commune that Christian provided for us. I, I do remember, remember this. Do you remember I, how it went for you, Travis? I think I got 0 for 3 or 0 for 4. My main thing is I can't remember how many questions there were. I remember that I was terrible at it. <laughs> well, and Christian Christian kind of uh, stomped the ground with your face a little bit, right? I kind of saw that coming. You know, he is an expert in the field, but still, yes, true. Total stomping. Well, we were we were both impressed. But, you know, there's there's a bit of tape I want you to play I think we should revisit one section of that quiz. Um, I sent it to you. Can you go ahead and play that? It's the part about Celebration Florida. Here it comes. I'm going to say that the financial cohesiveness of this group would put it outside of a true community because I believe you're all buying in and can then sell out on an individual basis versus kind of a consecration of property that you would have to go to court to recover. Well, you're good. Travis, he's crushing you. Um, I, I knew it. <laughs> yeah, like, so literally, it does have an entry in Timothy Miller's book. At the end, he says almost exactly what Christian said. Yeah, I mean, we were both impressed. Um, but it's come to my attention that there was a little bit more going on there than we knew at the time. And just in the interests of full transparency, Christian, do you have anything you want to share about that moment and that answer? Yeah, you got me. Um, I had uh, the PDF of Tim Miller's Encyclopedic Guide to Intentional Communities open on my desktop. That's a book that uh, I helped to publish. And I, I did have it open as a reference for the various definitions of intentional communities that he has in the preface. But I couldn't resist using the command F 
to uh, search out Celebration as you asked the question to see if it was in the book. And I admit that I hurriedly reformulated Miller's own language uh, to answer the question. And I, I did feel a slight twinge of guilt as you congratulated me kind of in that astonished fashion for the accuracy of my answer. So nobody told me it was open book. (laughs) (laughs) Travis, I don't know if there's any hard feelings, but I just wanted you to know what went down. You know, I am going to stick to my non PDF question answering for the rest of our quizzes. Just so everybody knows I'm on the up and up. (laughs) (laughs) And I promise to keep using command F as much as possible. (laughs) (laughs) On to today's episode. So Christian, until you mentioned accretion unity to me, I'd never heard of it. And they're so interesting and so strange. And one of the most intriguing things about them is their very unusual cosmology. We've got a bit of tape from one of their um, important members named Alan Andrews. And he explains how they conceive of the universe and the Earth's place in it. And Travis, if you could go ahead and play that. You got it. Here we go. We have here a working model of the hollow globe or the standard of cosmogony, as we call it. On the inner surface of this great shell, we find here the western continent. Over there is the eastern hemisphere. And here is the sphere of the heavens with sun, moon, and stars revolving. Contrary to the usual thought that the China is beneath our feet, it is in reality above us. Christian, help. Yeah. um, So it's... It's a a completely mind-bending way to regard our place in the universe, as you said, their cosmology. Uh, They believed that we live on the inside. So they believed that the horizon actually curved upwards. We lived on the inner surface of a sphere, and all of the cosmos were contained within that sphere. Uh, And this was something that Corrections, even after the moon landings in 1969, wrote into major national publications challenging the validity of the photos of the Earth from the moon and explaining them away. So this was a, a true tenet of faith for them. It, it's and there's you know in these wonderful books that that we've been reading, there's these amazing pictures of these globes that are sliced in half and then the continents painted on the inside. And I have so many questions about it. And it's such an interesting and sort of strange belief. And it, and it made me wonder, is there a history to it? Did they come up with this completely by themselves? Or are they drawing on other traditions? Well, as the old saying goes, there's nothing new under the sun, even if you live inside the earth. Yeah, there's quite a long historical um, precedence for this hollow earth theory. The first instance of it actually comes from the 13th century when an English writer, Scholastic, named Bartholomew of England, posited that there was actually a huge hole at the North Pole. This belief was carried forward, and the Jesuit polymath named Athanasius Kircher wrote a book in 1665. Kircher took that whirlpool at the North Pole and theorized that all of the world's oceans were emptying into it, going to the center of the Earth where they were heated in this fiery core And then they were expelled from the bottom of the earth and emerged as temperate water, almost the temperature of bath water, which explained why, for the most part, the world's oceans uh, are not frozen. The scholar Jocelyn Godwin likened Kircher's theory to his belief that many systems in nature functioned like the human body. You put things in your mouth, they're digested in your stomach, and they're expelled out your 
anus. Then we move forward to Sir Edmund Halley, the uh, namesake of Halley's Comet, which some of us saw as kids in 1986. I remember it well. Halley, who was a close associate of Sir Isaac Newton, Robert Boyle, Christopher Wren, all these great minds of the English Enlightenment, was absolutely convinced that the Earth was hollow and was composed of three concentric spheres. He presented papers about this to the Royal Society in London in 1691. Uh, so this is not a kind of far outlier belief. Now, when we come to early America, there's a gentleman named John Cleve Sims, who was a War of 1812 veteran. And by 1818, he had set himself up in St. Louis, Missouri. And he published a broadside. Uh, it says, to all the world, I declare the earth is hollow and habitable within, containing a number of solid concentric spheres, one within the other, and that it is open at the poles, 12 or 16 degrees. I pledge my life in support of this truth and am ready to explore the hollow if the world will support and aid me in this undertaking. He gained a lot of followers who actually petitioned Congress to fund his expedition into the center of the earth. Sadly, he died before it could be carried out. but his uh, followers did actually spur a number of early geographical exploration missions funded by the U.S. Congress. So a crazy idea, yes, but it has spurred some practical uh, outcomes. Now oh, you say, sadly, he died before it could be undertaken. Really? Sadly, before they tunneled into the earth and all died? When they... Can you imagine how cool that would have been, though, in like 1820 to have a bunch of St. Louis fur trappers trying to get to the center of the earth? That's Amazing. got a Hollywood script written all over. <laughs> I'm watching that movie tonight. Amazing. Um, yeah. Well, uh, it just piques your interest about the Koreshian unity. And um, we've got two amazing guests today. So let's get to it. Let's bring on Adam Morris and Lynn Milner. And we'll find out so much more about them. Okay, I'll start. So I'm Lynn Milner. And I wrote the book, The Allure of Immortality, about Cyrus Teed and the Koreshians. I am also a journalism professor at Florida Gulf Coast University. I founded the journalism program there. Great. Adam, tell us a little bit about yourself. My name is Adam Morris. I am a literary translator by training, and I also work on nonfiction uh, essays of all different kinds and really have developed kind of just a specialty on 19th century weird history. And that's what led me to write the book, American Messiahs, which is a 200-year history of American Messianic movements. Well, Adam, you've come to the right place with your love of weird history. That's what we do here. And I think, Lynn, we'll, we'll start with you. I just love the opening of your book. You describe in detail the scene when Cyrus Teed died, and I wonder if you could uh, recap that for us. Sure. So Cyrus Teed died in 1908, and his followers had always believed that he was going to transmutate. Uh, that was never really explained very clearly what that meant. And they took that to mean that he would resurrect, that he would not really die. And so they believed that he was in what they called suspended animation. And so he lay in a beach house with open windows. There was <laughs> ventilation. Um, they placed him in a tin bathtub that had been made to his dimensions and they filed through the room and watched his body transmutate what we would think of as 
decaying. And they wrote about it in depth, which for a researcher was great because I had lots of letters that they had written about the way it smelled and the way his skin looked and the coroners that came and tried to convince them that he was dead. (laughs) He was quite extinct is how they phrased it. Um, So they kept him in that beach house for five days until the health department forced them to bury him. And they put him in a mausoleum in a tomb that they built on the beach. And a woman who identified herself as Anastasia left a note saying that these blocks could not hold him back, that he would rise again. Hmm. Now, Lynn, this is a beach on the Florida Gulf Coast, right? Yes. In, In December, it was, I believe it was Christmas Day. As I recall, your book describes his followers looking through his rapidly blackening flesh hopefully seeing a new being forming and taking shape within the decaying one. Is that correct? Right. They saw what they described as hieroglyphics on his flesh. I talked to a medical examiner who said that what they would be looking at would be marbling of the the flesh, which occurs uh, during the decaying process. They also said that they detected a, a bud of an arm growing out of his existing arm. And the medical examiner said that that's normal, like that's blistering that happens on the skin. So they must have been looking through a clear-ish blister and thinking they were seeing something. So everything that was happening to his body was a sign to them that he was, um, I think there was even maybe some green stuff growing under his toenails that you know, it was a sign of regeneration. Um, So everything that they saw, they interpreted as regrowth or resurrection. So Lynn, the historian Carl Karmer referred to the Erie Canal as the psychic highway. And it, of course, flowed right through the city of Utica. And T settled in Utica and practiced eclectic medicine there. And his pivotal revelatory event happened in Utica in 1869. Can you tell us a little bit about that illumination? Sure. Interestingly, he worked on the Erie Canal when he was 11. So my theory was that these ideas were sort of floating around him even as he was growing up. So he was a hoggy. His job was to walk the mules along the canal And then he would have, I think it was six hours on, six hours off, something like that. And so he would have lots of time to be on the boats listening to people. And this is where ideas were exchanged. Lots was changing. So that piece of his learning would have begun when he was very young. So so yes, he had an illumination in 1869. Some people have theorized that it was the result of an electric shock. I never found... uh, any evidence. Certainly that might have happened, but he was sitting in his lab one evening and he experienced a buzzing at his occiput. That was how he described it. And then he just had this vision of an angel who appeared to him. Lots of gold and purple imagery. He described her as having very long, lustrous hair and exquisite fingernails, which I thought was curious that you would noticed that she appeared to him and gave him these messages that he was sent to redeem humanity and that she would walk by his side. So she said, you're going to have some hard times, but I'll be here with you. 
So that was the illumination when he was 30 in 1869. Curiously, he didn't publish it for many, many years until after he had achieved some success. So this might have been totally apocryphal. Um, we just don't know. And again, scholars have said, well, he worked in a lab with lots of chemicals and phoretic battery, and maybe there was some kind of electrical shock. We just don't know. He woke up on his couch and it had all happened. He felt that if her voice was speaking through his own mouth. It was all very Blakeian. <laughs> William Blake. <laughs> Adam, so that kind of epiphany or religious experience is pretty common for some of these religious movements in the 19th century. And I'm wondering if what Lynn's described, there's a familiar pattern there to you? Well, first to follow up on something Lynn was saying, the years that Teed was working on the canal are really important because when he was 11, this would have been right after the Fox sisters speaking to spirits. And Teed would later become a huge opponent of spiritualism, but there's no denying that he would have known all about it from working on the canal during the high watermark of upstate New York spiritualism. And so the fact that he's visited by a spirit or an angel, as, as he sort of characterizes her, is not surprising. And in addition to working with electricity, he did claim to be able to distinguish the results of his alchemical experiments by taste. And so if he was tasting heavy metals, he could have also poisoned himself. And I think this is also something Lynn made me realize in her book. And I think that's actually uh, a more powerful explanation for what might have happened to his octopus or whatever he called it. <laughs> octopus, I like that. <laughs> um, but yeah, he, he was a, very into brain science, but that came later. Um, he had... The epiphany that Lynn mentioned, and she suggested it's apocryphal, that's in part because it wasn't written up until the Chicago time period. And so there is some post facto revisionist uh, historicism going on here. Teed realizes that it's incumbent on him as the leader of the movement to create an origin story that suits the kind of results or outcomes that he wants for the group. And so really, at the time he was living in upstate New York... He wasn't necessarily talking about the hollow earth yet. The evidence for that comes later. And I actually see it coming uh, towards the end of a long line of intellectual progression for Teed in, in terms of the sort of influences that he brings to bear on the movement. But he certainly does, in answer to your question, fabricate this moment of epiphany that is really crucial. So armed with this new illumined spirit that he possessed in this mission to redeem humanity, Teed makes what I think both of you describe as almost a rake's progress from Syracuse, where he's accused of having dalliances with married women, down to New York City, where he's accused of the same sort of thing. He definitely wandered in the desert uh, for a while after his illumination. I think it was about 13 years. And he was a doctor of eclectic medicine, so he tried to make money as a doctor. He did have a wife, but she was very ill with Pott's disease. He left her in Binghamton with his bestie, and he traveled and tried to doctor and 
wrote up his theories and sent letters back to his best friend in Binghamton. And those letters are still in the state archives and they're fascinating to, uh, to read. He was working out his theories and also planning a hostile takeover of the Harmony Society. And as he tried to doctor people in these small New York towns, he would try to work in his theories and tell them that he was sent to redeem humanity and they would find other doctors. So he was just striking out. Um, There was a death threat in Sandy Creek at one point, and he just was not well-liked. So all of this stuff that would later happen in Chicago is already starting to happen as he's trying to convince people to give him money, he is the Messiah. So he moves from town to town. So put us in Moravia, New York. I mean, Teed's Teed's perambulating all around upstate. He's doing a lot of different things. He's been through the Civil War. Adam, what's he doing in Moravia? So... Teed, at the very outset of his career as a messiah, is very interested in labor reform and also very interested in a kind of classical reform Protestantism uh, way with rebelling against the established Protestant churches in America, the mainland Protestant denominations. And he has become a student of all of these other movements across the Burnover District that existed there because of the Erie Canal acting as a conduit for information and ideas coming across upstate New York. He was really clued into a lot of radical lifestyles that were taking place all over the state. And he knew about Oneida. He knew about the Harmony Society. And in Moravia, he had started a work colony that is sort of modeled along the lines of modern times. Stephen Pearl Andrew and Josiah Warren's anarchist commune on Long Island that predated Teed's activity as a leader of anything by a couple of decades. And so his original intent was to do something along the lines of what had made Oneida successful, which was creating a a mass-produced item in a place where people lived communistically, shared resources, etc. And so that's what he tried to do in Moravia with his parents' mop factory. So Teed has this realization that overthrowing capitalism with a communist mop factory would be impossible. The problem was mops are not ingenious steel animal traps like they were making over in Oneida. And the the profit margins were just too small. And he had attracted too much controversy because of the lifestyles that they were living there. John Humphrey Noyes had already stirred up enough opposition to this sort of thing uh, to kind of raise people's hackles. So that's what he was trying to do, but it failed miserably, and Teed ends up leaving Moravia because of that. Well, Lynn, the parallels to Oneida are really interesting. Of course, there's some differences as well. And one of the things that really struck me about the Koresh in Unity is I think you said in your book there were four times as many women uh, as there were men who were members. Uh, yeah, that sounds about right. It might have even reached 80 Women were really primed for this. You know, it was not fun to be a woman in the 1890s, 1880s. You didn't have a lot of freedom. And if you were married to a guy who was a butthead, you know, there wasn't much you could do. Um, If you left, you could have your kids taken from you. And your kids were really your identity when you were a woman in those times, right? That was, it was all about family. That was your job. That was your identity. So, um, 
you were kind of stuck and, and weren't really valued and couldn't easily get a job or have money of your own. So here comes this guy, Teed, who apparently many of them thought was attractive. <laughs> and he had this message of equality for women or equity, as he called it, for women and vocational training, shared childcare. You could get away from the husband who was mistreating you. And so not surprisingly, women were attracted to this. There's plenty of evidence that they didn't always fully understand exactly his theology. I didn't either. I read through a lot of his letters and it's pretty inscrutable. But they very much liked him and they very much liked having shared childcare and being with good girlfriends and just living in a communal house, being able to, you know, learn a trade, you know, publishing or lace making or making a little bit of money. So, yeah, not surprisingly, a lot of women loved that lifestyle and were also able to be pious and, and pure. And he meets a woman named Thankful Hale. I love her name. Thankful is her first name. And she says, you have to come speak at this Chicago Convention of Mental Scientists. Um, so he goes to speak in Chicago, and that's where he has his big break. People tell stories of being healed on the stage with him. A woman says that she couldn't walk and she walked home. So these stories of healing really caught on um, somehow that the, the spiritual and the physical were connected. Now, Adam, um, women may have perceived Teed as an attractive man, but did Teed conceive of himself as a man? And I think this is an important aspect we've got to talk about with him. He underwent a certain illumination that revealed something to himself about his own gender. That's right. So it's a lot harder today, I feel like, even to talk about this, considering how much concepts of gender have evolved. Um, but what's interesting is how much it stayed the same in some ways. Um, Teed thought that gender was a fluid concept in, in some ways. And he gets this idea from mystical interpretations of, of the Bible. And basically, it boils down to God being by gendered, because in, in the story of Genesis and the creation, uh, God creates man in his own image before dividing up the two genders into ma man and woman. And so the suggestion then is that God is both male and female. So throughout his life, he was preaching this idea, not only of the equality of the genders, but that um, his messianic identity would pass into the body of a woman after a certain point. This is the transmutation that Lynn was referring to and which was constantly being theologically adjusted and was even at one point postponed. Uh, do I think that he considered himself a man? I think he understood that outwardly his, his biological physiognomy was male because a lot of his early theology in particular about brain science, about spermatozoa, about cellular biology had to do with biological sex differences. And he was appealing to his followers on that basis as well. So Lynn, he picked a, a woman to be his co-equal and co-leader of the Koreshian unity. Can you tell us about her? Sure. Her name was Annie Ordway. She was married, as many women who he attracted were. <laughs> she later got divorced. Uh, he chose her 
and we don't really know why he chose her. She, I think he liked the way she carried herself. She was tall. She sort of took no guff. And he recognized all of this, and he just felt like she was his sort of counterpart. And his theory was that when it was time for him to transmute, he would flow into her vessel. That's how he wrote it. And they would each become a Bayoun kind of god. So if you were female, you would become male. If you were male, you would become female. Yeah, so this was something that I followed throughout letters that were written long after both of their deaths. And it's something the followers never fully worked out was how this was going to go down. And I think the idea is their bodies would maybe remain um, the same or their bodies would change and the spirits would remain the same. So the followers weren't sure how it was going to happen. And there's some sense in which maybe... Uh, Teed let on that it was uncertain what the transmigration was going to look like physically, or if they would both be bigendered physically as well. And there were arguments about this after their death. And the other thing I would say, there's evidence that Victoria was a really powerful speaker, that she acquitted herself amazingly when they went to visit the Shakers, as well as when she gave speeches in San Francisco. And so I think she had the same amount of charisma and dynamism that Teed felt he had himself. It sounds like there was good reasons for him to pick her, but I wondered if he had any regrets. When reading your book, it seemed like she was a divisive figure towards the end of the commune. She was. She was definitely divisive. And in fact, as Teed was dying, his sister Emma wanted to keep Victoria away. As he was dying in Estero, his sister Emma really wanted to keep Victoria in D.C., away from him. And she said, Victoria agitates him, so keep her there and don't let her in on the fact that he's dying. She was incredibly divisive. Did he regret choosing her? He sure did stick by her. He defended her his whole life, and lots of people tried to bring her down, and I don't think they fully understood why he had chosen her and not them. There were some women who he told, well, you are my Minerva, right? Whatever that means. Um, and they all believed, and then they would compare notes and say, well, he told me that I was his Minerva. But he really did choose Victoria, name her, and then stick by her side as people criticized her, in some cases gave her jewelry that had belonged to other women. He ultimately lands in Chicago. You talk a little bit about that trajectory that got him situated finally where he launched his largest intentional community. Well, Teed had already tried living communistically around a workshop enterprise situation, and that didn't work out initially. And in Chicago, he imagined something completely different, which was a university-based approach uh, even the, the idea of the modern university was really just then becoming codified. And there weren't a lot of rules about how you could do it, right? There were spiritual academies founded by the followers of Mary Baker Eddy that called themselves universities, colleges, whatever. 
And there were all kinds of colleges founded throughout the 19th century by every single denomination of schismatic Protestantism that you can name. And so Teed did this too. There, there was a lot of philanthropy going on at this time, a lot of people who wanted to put money behind it. And he first got this idea for a college in New York City where he had infiltrated a woman's discussion group that was tutored or mentored by Stephen Pearl Andrews himself. And Teed kind of elbowed Andrews out of the group, got these women interested in brain science after he had initially provoked their curiosity with his sort of scientific take on spiritualism. Spiritualism was evolving, brain science was emerging, an understanding of electricity in the brain uh, and the brain's mechanics had become known to scientists. And Teed was very aware of these kinds of trends as as Lynn has already pointed out with the women-led movements in mind power that came out of Mary Baker Eddy's uh, Christian Science. And the other thing that Christian Science spawned was a lot of apostates because Mary Baker Eddy was very fond of ejecting people from the church who she perceived to be more ambitious. So that's the origin of, of that uh, convention that he was attending was a lot of people who had already gotten kicked out of Christian science. And they were interested as well in forming some kind of training academy, some kind of educational institution where they could continue to develop the ideas that were meaningful to them about mind power. And Teed grafted his baloney brain science onto this. And it was really convincing to everybody who was there. And that's how he ended up taking control of the group. He had this highfalutin vocabulary. He was a doctor. Nobody really knew what kind of doctor. It didn't matter. His credentials and his charisma were enough to win the day. And so the first profit-making enterprise that they had in Chicago to support everyone's lifestyle was a college whose faculty included his top followers. And I think all but one of the original faculty were women. So this was incredibly rare that it was a college that accepted both men and women. It was teaching alternative types of biology and what he called universology. And this was obviously a ripoff as well of, of Stephen Pearl Andrews, but nobody in Chicago was the wiser. And it was tuition fees. Of, of this enterprise that really kept them going. And it's not like they kept going very well. Lynn paints a very vivid portrait, and maybe she could talk more about it, of, of just how rough those first years were at the College of Life in Chicago. Yeah, there was a Thanksgiving when they didn't have heat. Oil bills in Chicago were expensive, which was one of the reasons for their move to Florida, in addition to the angry husbands. So yeah, things were rough. They didn't make a ton of money from the college, but they made enough to get by, usually on donations from members who were joining. Um, there was always this interest in how much money does this person have? So there was a society you could join as an outsider just to kind of go to their social events. I think it was the Society of the Arch Triumphant. That was kind of the entryway. And then from there, they would attract you into the smaller group. I imagine it like a sorority or fraternity rush, trying to find out who are the people with the money and let's get them to join. Um, and it was tough for them. They had heating bills. They had 
legal fees. You have to feed yourself. So there were all sorts of financial pressures. I remember too, Lynn, there was a wrongful death lawsuit when Teed very publicly tried to heal someone who was dying, I believe, of tuberculosis, just like Teed's wife had died from and failed. And that case went through the courts. And I, I can speak, I think, for Dan as well as myself as gullible Chicagoans, because we're both from Chicago. Teed found a very fertile ground in which to publicly unveil his next very radical theory. And uh, I guess I'll ask Adam to speak to that. This was, of course, the theory of the hollow earth. Yeah, so Teed became associated with this theory most closely after the Florida period because that's where he tested the theory. They actually conducted scientific experiments that proved to their satisfaction that the Earth was a hollow sphere. And this was part of Teed's evolving universology, which was constantly being updated and edited and republished. Uh, and adapted in response to critics and in response to holes in the theory of which there are very many. And for Teed, the entire universe was a hollow shell. And the cosmic theory of correspondences holds that all things exist in analogy. And so the sun was at the center of the earth for Teed. Uh, and the outer edges of the earth were the seven crusts of different valuable minerals. And outside of that, you might wonder, what is there? It's not nothing. It's that the outside of that uh, crusty sphere that we live inside, that was the surface of yet another sun that was inside another larger hollow universe. Dude, dude you're blowing my mind. Item. <laughs> blowing my mind. You got to stop. <laughs> You've got new research that I don't have. I did not remember that. I had always thought that the at the outer layer, it was encased in gold, and that outside of that, there was nothing. But you're saying it was all inside of a sun. <laughs> yeah, inside any sun is another one of those universes. Isn't it in Chicago where he starts corresponding with Ulysses G. Morrow, who's already a hollow earth guy in uh, Pennsylvania? And they, they want to go to Florida because it gives them the chance to prove that theory by working on the beaches. Right. So Lizzie's Morrow, he finds this guy from Allegheny, Pennsylvania, who's actually a flat earther, who spends all of his time just studying and drawing and trying to prove the flat earth. And then he comes across Teed's theory and he says, I realize that the flat earth theory is just invalid right I've, i have had my you know mind blown and i realized that it's it's all about the hollow earth so he comes to chicago and they start experimenting they're doing tests out on a lake or a canal and they just can't get it right no one's listening to them it drives them insane that no one's listening to them and they know that if they're going to catch the eye of the scientific community they really need to go about it in such a way that is just solid right so they invent this thing called a rectilineator. And whenever I tell people about this, they say a rectal, what were they doing <laughs> with their rectums? No, but it's a rectilineator, um, looks kind of like a corral with a tall fence. It was made out of mahogany that had been seasoned for 12 years in the shops of Pullman's Palace Car Company. They unveiled it in a ceremony that they had announced in Chicago 
They had it at an auditorium. They advertised it in advance. In the papers, you know, I'm passionate about yellow journalism, and I relied on a lot of it in writing this book. So in the Chicago Tribune, a reporter wrote that the invitation had been sent out to come to this unveiling. The Chicago Tribune wrote that those who received the invitation must have felt tremendous relief. The residents of that suburb, some of them at least, have been greatly worried for years as to where, whether they were living on a flat or spherical planet, whether the Earth might not be a parallelopiped or a loon. Some of them, it is said, have lain awake nights. It is hinted that science is trembling on the verge of a great discovery. So they unveil the rectilineator in Chicago, but then they quickly realize we're taking this down to the Gulf of Mexico to test this. And he had free land in order to do this. And his theory was, if we can test this on the Gulf, right, that's going to prove it. Whereas just testing it on a lake, it doesn't conform to the surfaces of the earth the same way, I guess, that the Gulf does. So we're going to take it to the Gulf and run the rectilineator down a stretch of straight beach in order to prove that the Earth curves upward instead of downward. Well, you know, one question I have is about the psychological dynamics of having such a literally outlandish theory. And in some ways it seems so, at least to our ears, and maybe it seemed less ridiculous then, but it seems so ridiculous and I'm wondering if it did seem ridiculous to his followers or if there was maybe some sort of dynamic going on where it was sort of the table ante was you must say you believe in this madness to be in the group. And then that's a separating factor, you know, that that keeps people cohered in the group. The impression that I had and one that lasted into the 70s, 1970s, was that this was just sort of the guy's project. You know, some guys have train sets in their basement, right? Um, because there was a woman survivor, the last survivor was talking about it, and she was asked to explain it. And this was in the 70s or 80s, and she said, you know, you're just going to have to ask the men about that because I don't understand it. And I think that was my impression that that had been sort of carried throughout. So they just believed it, but they didn't understand it. And in fact, I had to read like the equivalent of the Cliff Notes, Donald Semenek's work, trying to untangle his theory that was published in the Cellular Cosmogony with Ulysses Grant Morrow. Now, Adam, before they left Chicago, they had some rough times and I... Uh, remember reading something, I believe it was in your book. There were a number of Koreshian dwellings in Chicago, but one called Beth Oprah, which I hope I'm saying correctly. Uh, someone leaving an explosive device on the sidewalk outside of that. Yeah, that happened. Teed had many admirers, but he had even more detractors. So kind of in relation to to the, to the last question, I think a lot of people came across his ideas and did think they were ridiculous and absurd. They just didn't join the Koreshian unity. And of the people who did, you know, they made they made easy targets for ridicule. The Koreshian unity had an orchestra that was once pelted with like eggs, I think, or rotten vegetables. And Teed's several dwellings in Chicago, one communal building of apartments, another a mansion where he resided along with the closest followers, both experienced some version of a siege. And there is a note, actually, a death threat from this era as well that relates to 
the alleged bomb that was found underneath the sidewalk. It could have also been something the Christians did themselves to court sympathy or to attract legal protection because Teed was always trying to get the authorities to do a better job of protecting him on the grounds of religious freedom. Well, uh, you know, that's pretty common in communal groups is to attract scrutiny and sometimes hostility. And I'm gathering Chicago maybe had its advantages when it got started as a big city, but also being in a big city, you're certainly going to get more scrutiny and hostility. I was going to say one thing that made it really unusual is that Chicago at the time was really becoming this reform-minded place. Certainly not for the very wealthy, but you saw people really finally standing up for the workers. There were unions. There was the Women's Temperance Union, right, which was very active. The Jane Addams House, a settlement house, was built. So people were enacting, effecting reform within society. They were going into society to do the work and effect reform. Teed's belief was we can effect reform by being more isolationist and we'll live as an example as opposed to running a settlement house or, you know, marching in the streets for equal rights or whatever. So that became harder and harder to sustain and came under scrutiny because who are these weird people living in this house? If you're going to have a commune, you need to go do it on land far away from other people. So that was one of the pressure that I think a lot of people don't realize. Well, I think Adam points out in his book, 1886, that same year, Teed makes his landmark address at the Mental Science Convention is when the Haymarket bombing happens. So those issues of labor and class and capital are certainly percolating. So, Dan, you were asking a question about maybe it was a good idea for them to get out of town, huh? Yeah, it seems like we all agree it was a good idea for them to get out of town. Like many Chicagoans before and since, they made the only logical decision, which was to move to Florida. And, you know, let's break right now and call this an episode. And then on our next episode, we'll have Adam and Lynn tell us about their amazing adventure in Florida. All right. It's good enough. Nobody listens to the very end of a podcast anyway. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, It's not like people stick around for the credits. 